This morning's Bible reading is from Esther, chapter 7, verse 1, through to chapter 8, verse 8. So the king and Haman went to Queen Esther's banquet. As they were drinking wine on the second day, the king asked again, Queen Esther, what is your petition? It will be given to you. What is your request? Even up to half the kingdom, it will be granted. Then Queen Esther answered, If I have found favour with you, your majesty, and if it pleases you, grant me my life, this is my petition, and spare my people, this is my request. For I and my people have been sold to be destroyed, killed and annihilated. If we had merely been sold as male and female slaves, I would have kept quiet, because no such distress would justify disturbing the king. King Xerxes asked Queen Esther, Who is he? Where is he, the man who has dared to do such a thing? Esther said, An adversary, an enemy, this vile Haman. Then Haman was terrified before the king and queen. The king got up in a rage, left his wine, and went out into the palace garden. But Haman, realising the king had already decided his fate, stayed behind to beg Queen Esther for his life. Just as the king returned from the palace garden to the banquet hall, Haman was falling on the couch where Esther was reclining. The king exclaimed, Will he even molest the queen while she is with me in the house? As soon as the word left the king's mouth, they covered Haman's face. Then Harbona, one of the eunuchs, attended the king, said, A pole reaching to a height of 50 cubits stands by Haman's house. He had it set up for Mordecai, who spoke up to help the king. The king said, Impale him on it. So they impaled Haman on the pole he had set up for Mordecai. Then the king's fury subsided. That same day, King Xerxes gave Queen Esther the estate of Haman, the enemy of the Jews. And Mordecai came into the presence of the king, for Esther had told told how he was related to her. The king took off his signet ring, which he had reclaimed from Haman, and presented it to Mordecai. And Esther appointed him over Haman's estate. Esther again pleaded with the king, falling at his feet and weeping. She begged him to put an end to the evil plan of Haman the Agite, which he devised against the Jews. Then the king extended the gold scepter to Esther, and she arose and stood before him. If it pleases the king, she said, and if he regards me with favour and thinks it the right thing to do, and if he is pleased with me, let an order be written overruling, and dispatch, overruling the dispatches that Haman, the son of Hamadatha, the Agite, devised and wrote to destroy all the, kings, all the Jews in the king's province. For how can I bear to see disaster fall on my people? How can I bear to see the, the destruction of my family? King Xerxes replied to Queen Esther and to Mordecai the Jew, because, of Haman, attack, because Haman attacked the Jews, I have given the, his estate to Esther, and they have impaled him on the pole he set up. Now write another decree in the king's name in in behalf of the Jews as it seems best to you and seal it with the king's signet ring for no document written in the king's name and sealed with his ring can be revoked. Good morning. G'day, my name's Scott. Uh, If you're here for the first time with us today, welcome. It's really great to have you with us. 
Uh, you probably want to follow along in uh, that uh, handout you've got there, uh, just so you make sure that uh, what I'm saying is actually what God has said in the Bible. Uh, you'll also find another little uh, sheet in there, which has got a map on one side and a bit of a timeline, uh, help us sort of get our heads around when and where this is taking place. And then it's got just an outline on the back. Let me pray. Heavenly Father, please open our eyes that we would see wonderful things in your word this morning. Amen. Well, some events just naturally create like a chain reaction for celebration, don't they? Some events are just so good and so wonderful that it's like, it's like celebration is just kind of an explosion that just naturally comes out of it. Winning a grand final, getting your place in the course that you've struggled and worked and applied for, having her say yes when you finally worked up the courage to ask her out, having her say yes when you finally worked up the courage to ask her to marry you, the birth of a child, a friend coming home from a long trip or, or grandma making it to her 100th birthday. See, these events, they create excitement and adrenaline and endorphins and serotonins and, and smiling and hugging and cries of joy and even dancing, don't they? There are certain events that just naturally produce this explosion of celebration. And some of those events actually come at the end of a nightmare. The end of World War II the fall of the Berlin Wall, the rescue of a whole soccer team from a cave in Thailand trapped underground, the finding of little four-year-old Cleo Smith after 18 days since she was abducted from her family's tent. See, for these events, the celebration is even greater, even more desperate, even more wonderful. The relief, the elation, the tears, the joy, the flood of emotion, the crying, the hugging, the singing, the partying. Now, if you've joined us for the first time today, you might have been sitting through our last two readings saying, whoa, there's been a lot of talk of destruction and killing and impaling and planning to kill people going on. And it, it all sounds pretty weird. What in the world is going on here? Well, if you're thinking that, that's a good question. Let's uh, help you out. I set a little bit of the scene for us this morning. So this morning, in our reading in Esther, we've travelled back through history almost 2,500 years to somewhere between the years 479 and 465 BC. Now, what's happened up to this point in history is that God's people, the Jews, had sinned against God, and so God scattered them out of their land. Instead of a great nation like they were supposed to be, he spread them all up, scattered around the Persian Empire. And instead of having God's blessing, they're living under the curse of foreign rulers. And instead of having God's king, they have no king but Xerxes, this drunk, impetuous, volatile king of the Persians. Now, when we get to this particular uh, passage that we read this morning, 
Only three months earlier, King Xerxes' right-hand man called Haman had passed a law demanding a complete eradication of every Jew in the Persian Empire. He'd made a law making it law that every single person who's not a Jew has to take up a weapon and go and eradicate every man, woman and child who is a Jew in the kingdom. And so you can imagine, if you're a Jew at this time in history, things are looking pretty grim. The one thing you've got going for you is that Haman uh, is a superstitious man and so uh, he rolled some dice to choose which month and which day this would happen. And it just so happens that as he rolled the dice in the first month of the year, uh, the day that was chosen was for the 11th month of the year. And so it's been three months since this law's gone out, but there's another nine months until this day when they know all their neighbours, everyone around them is going to turn on them. That's a pretty scary place to be. And so for those three months, the Jews have been crying out to God, mourning, begging, praying that he will save them. But as we've seen in Esther so far, God's got everything in control. In the background, in every little detail, big, small, God's been orchestrating everything so that all his dominoes will fall into place and God's people will be saved. The first big domino we saw was that without realising it, and that's not really surprising for King Xerxes because he's not really a details guy uh, so far, without realising it, King Xerxes has actually married a Jewish woman. And out of thousands and thousands of the prettiest virgins throughout the land, he picked Esther, a Jew. But he doesn't know that she's a Jew. The second domino is that Esther's cousin Mordecai, who happens to be Haman's arch enemy, he just happened to save the king's life a little while ago. And now Mordecai is the king's new favourite servant. And the third domino is that Esther a couple of days before, has stuck her neck out and invited the king and his evil number two, Haman, to come to two nights of private dining at her own palace. And here we pick up on night two, the second party in a row for Esther, Xerxes and Haman. And Xerxes is really intrigued. His curiosity is aroused and knowing Xerxes, that's probably not all. But God has been working everything together to this point and we're about to see what happens next. Now, who's ever been to a, uh, a dinner party or an event that turned out a little bit more dramatic than you're expecting? You ever been to one of those? You know, you get to a party, you think it's just to catch up with some friends and you know, some of the hosts end up having a domestic or, you know, someone storms out in a fuss or two friends decide they hate each other or, or maybe someone ends up going home in an ambulance or not home, to the hospital in an ambulance. You know, some, someone thinks they can jump a fence and don't quite make it or have some kind of serious health condition and, and what you thought was just going to be a nice, relaxing, quiet, fun night with friends turns out into some dramatic 
disaster that you'll never forget. Well, I think in the history of dramatic dinner parties, this one at Esther's place has got to be right up there. Have a look. Verse 2. As they were drinking wine on the second day, the king again asked, Queen Esther, what is your petition? It will be given to you. What is your request? Even up to half the kingdom, it will be granted. Then Queen Esther answered, If I found favour with you, your majesty, and if it pleases you, grant me my life. This is my petition. And spare my people, this is my request. For I and my people have been sold to be destroyed, killed and annihilated. I don't think that's what Xerxes was expecting. I don't know what he thought Esther was going to come up with, but I'm pretty sure it wasn't that. Imagine having your own queen say to you, someone is trying to kill me and my people. Now, we already know enough about Xerxes to know he's a pretty hot-headed guy, right? He, like, you know, he makes snap decisions and it often ends in someone dying. And so you can imagine that you know, his blood's probably boiling at this point and he's probably feeling confused, enraged, and probably looking for someone to kill. Throughout the course of this one evening, this one dinner party, Esther pleads with her husband, the king, for her life. She uncovers Haman's wicked plot. She reveals her Jewish ethnicity. Haman gropes the queen just as the king walks back into the room. This is a crazy dinner party. The king discovers that Haman has built a 15-metre death spike in his backyard, which he built to kill Xerxes' favorite, new favourite servant, Mordecai, on. Who, by the way, Mordecai that is, turns out to be Esther's cousin, the guy that raised her because her parents died when she was a baby. By the end of the night, the king has Haman impaled on his spike instead. Mordecai walks out suddenly in control of everything that Haman once owned. And King Xerxes has given Haman's number one job in the kingdom to Mordecai. That's a pretty crazy dinner party, right? (laughs) But it's still not finished. Because by the end of the night, Esther and Mordecai sit down, come up with a new law. A law that counteracts and cancels out the law that Haman wrote for the destruction of the Jews. A law that gives the Jews the power and the authority to fight back against their enemies. In the course of this one dinner function, the situation completely flips. All those dominoes that were lined up, God's tapped, and they've all tumbled, and things have come out very differently to how it looked like they were going to play out. See, the situation started with the Jews in trouble and their enemy on top. By the end of one night, their enemies are in trouble and the Jews are on top. And that's the kind of moment that if you're a Jew, that leads to pretty explosive celebration, right? 
Have a look at verse 11. The king's edict granted the Jews in every city the right to assemble and protect themselves, to destroy, kill, and annihilate the armed men of any nationality or province who might attack them and their women and children, and to plunder the property of their enemies. Verse 14, the couriers riding the royal horses went out, spurred on by the king's command, and the edict was issued in the citadel of Susa. When Mordecai left the king's presence, he was wearing royal garments of blue and white, a large crown of gold and a purple robe of fine linen. And the city of Susa held a joyous celebration. For the Jews, verse 16, it was a time of happiness and joy and gladness and honour. In every province and in every city to which the edict of the king came, there was joy and gladness among the Jews with feasting and celebrating. Can you imagine what it was like for the Jews? Just that morning when you'd woken up, you and all of your countrymen had a death sentence hanging over your head. You had no way to escape, no way to fight back. You fight back, they'll just keep coming and coming and coming and they've got the king and all of his armies on their side. Your enemies are waiting with glee to destroy you. Mordecai, Mordecai was dressed in, in sackcloth, in potato bags, and he was covered in ashes that morning. And Haman was calling the shots from the palace. And then that morning when you'd woken up, there was suddenly this huge, scary-looking pole in Haman's front yard just waiting to stick Mordecai on it. But by the end of the night, as the horses race around the city and the messengers declare this new law, you have the power and the protection to fight back and, and save yourselves. Your enemies now are so scared at this sudden change of events that lots of them start converting to Judaism. Mordecai, who that morning was wearing a potato sack, is now wearing royal robes and a crown, and he's got the king's special ring on his finger. Mordecai is now the one calling the shots from the palace, and Haman is the one impaled like a giant human shish kebab. Wow, that's a pretty dramatic turn of events, isn't it? That's a pretty dramatic 24-hour turnaround. And there's only one explanation, isn't there? God has done this. God, the one true God, Yahweh, the God of the Jews, has saved them. And he's done it just like he's done on many occasions before. And so what other response as a Jew could you have had but to party, but to celebrate, to gather and dance and sing through the streets and proclaim how great is our God who has rescued us. And it's the celebration of God's salvation that is a characteristic of God's people in every age. But hang on a second. This other law which says everyone gets to attack the Jews is still in place. The king can't erase it. 
And, and in nine months' time, that day that was rolled in the dice, that day will come. And there's still going to be a battle. The enemies of the Jews will still attack them. And even though they can fight back, many of them might die. Actually, maybe, even though they get to fight back, maybe they'll still be overpowered. They aren't really out of the woods yet. Are they celebrating too early? I love some of those uh, videos that you can see online of the, you know, celebrating too early. Uh, my favourite is probably the really cocky boxers, you know, the ones that, you know, they're talking all this smack to their opponent and saying how they're going to wipe the floor with them and all of this. And, you know, the really, really cocky ones uh, and they just get knocked flat, you know, first round. I love it. Uh, you see the people who, you know, they're running, running a race, they get near the end, they're like, yeah, and they slow down because they're winning, and then at the last second, someone goes past because they celebrated too early. They counted all their chickens before they hatched. I remember once uh, when I was a younger man and uh, Keely and I were just dating, um, I had a new car and an old new car, and I was a shocker for running out of fuel. I would just forget to check the fuel gauge and... Uh, and this one day we were driving back from somewhere down the coast and we were on empty, you know, we are waiting, you know, the petrol stations, you know, you, when you've got heaps of fuel in the tank, there's a petrol station on every corner. When you've got no petrol in the tank, there's not one for miles. And we're driving and driving, waiting for a petrol station. Finally, we're coming down the road and we see a petrol station up on the right. I think, yes, we've made it. Started celebrating. And we cross across the street. And suddenly it dies. We've got just enough momentum to kind of roll into the bottom of the, of the driveway. Except the problem is it's all uphill from there. And so it died in the driveway and we had to get out. We had to push it to the Bowser, fill it up with diesel. And then because it's a diesel, there's all this other stuff you've got to do. I celebrated just a little bit too early and we didn't quite make it. Is that what the Jews are doing? They're celebrating nine months before the big battle. Shouldn't they still be worried? What's going on? Well, remember a couple of chapters ago in chapter 3, remember what Mordecai said to Esther. He said in chapter 3, verse 14, relief and deliverance for the Jews will arise. Will arise. Mordecai believed that God would save them. He didn't know how, but he believed that he would. And, and how can they believe that? Is that just wishful thinking? Well, if I, if I wish enough that God will do it, he'll do it for me. No, well, actually, if you turn over to the backside of your outline there and you see that little uh, promises diagram in the corner, God has made promises to his people. He has, he has promised that he will save a remnant of the Jews. He has promised he will not allow them to be wiped out. He has promised he will bring them back out of being scattered all around the Persian Empire, back as a nation, back to Canaan, the land that he promised them. He has promised that he will give them a king who will reign forever. So the Jews knew that God would keep his promises. They knew that God would bring deliverance and salvation. And not only that, but they'd seen it time and time again. 
This wasn't the first time they'd seen God line up all the dominoes and watch them tumble so that things worked out that God's people were saved. See, even though the final deliverance hadn't come yet, they knew that God had saved them. They knew that the victory now, in this moment, had already been won. Now, we kind of, we, we see examples of this in life, don't we? You've got a team or a, an athlete and they're working through the season and they've just got such a big lead that it gets to a certain point in the season where their points are so far ahead of everyone that even if they lose every single game or race or match from then on, they've already won the championship. They've won on points. And we, we also see that, yeah, we see that in, in that event of life. And that's kind of what's happening here. At this point in time, the championship's already been won. And so no matter how the battle goes, they know that God will save them. Have a look with me at verse 17. See, the Jews weren't the only ones that recognised that the victory had already been won. Verse 17, In every province and in every city to which the edict of the king came, there was joy and gladness among the Jews, with feasting and celebrating. Many people of other nationalities became Jews because fear of the Jews had seized them. See, it wasn't just the Jews that recognised, okay, this, this victory is already won. You don't convert to a group with a death warrant on their heads unless you're convinced they're going to come out on top. You don't convert to being a Jew unless at this point in time you truly believe that God is going to save his people. See, the battle was still to come, but the war was already won. Haman was dead. Mordecai was in his place. A new law had gone out. And you know what? If we think about it, that's exactly the same situation that we as Christians are in today. See, we've seen God turn the tables. While we had a death sentence hanging over our heads, we've seen God send deliverance through an unlikely source. Not by a beauty queen, but through a humble and unattractive servant. And we've seen God's enemy take aim, not just against God's people, but against God himself. The enemies of God were not just content to kill God's people. And so when God himself came into our world, when Jesus, the Son of God, came into the world he created, the enemies of God made plans to murder him. And like Mordecai, Jesus refused to bow to them. And so they rallied the enemies of God together in opposition against Jesus. They lobbied the ruler of their day to give him the green light for Jesus' execution. We heard that death sentence handed out, crucify him. And we saw Jesus lifted high on a pole 
dying a horrific and appalling death. We, like the Jews, mourned and fasted when his lifeless body was placed in a grave. But then, three days later, in the most incredible turnaround, the most dramatic unfolding of events in all of history, Jesus rose from the grave. He lay aside his rough grave clothes and now he's robed and crowned in glory. We watched him rise up through the clouds into heaven to claim his rightful place on the throne where he sits calling all the shots, holding all the power, putting all the dominoes right where he wants them to be. We have heard his decree decree that gives us the upper hand. We have received his guarantee, his spirit in us, which gives us the power and the ability to endure. And we wonder at his promise to come back again and make everything new, to come back and deal finally with every enemy and this broken world. See, like those Jews back in Esther's day, we wait here knowing the battle is still coming, knowing that we wait till Jesus returns. But we know that the victory has already been won at the cross. Jesus has already conquered And we just wait for him to finally come and mop up the mess. Have a listen to Colossians. You can read this on your outline there. Colossians 2, verse 13 to 15. When you were dead in your sins and in the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made you alive with Christ. He forgave us all our sins having cancelled the charge of our legal indebtedness, which stood against us and condemned us. He has taken it away, nailing it to the cross. And having disarmed the powers and the authorities, he made a public spectacle of them, triumphing over them by the cross. See, like the Jews who late that night heard the messengers of the king come And shout the new law, the new decree that the Jews can stand up and defend themselves. That the Jews are rescued. Like a team that's so far ahead on points, they know that it's impossible for anyone to defeat them. Like soldiers still on the front lines of battle after The end of the war has been declared and they're just waiting for armistice, waiting for the moment when the firing ceases. Like them, we can start celebrating now because Jesus has already won. We know that he has triumphed because he rose from the dead. He defeated evil, our guilt, death every power that stands in opposition. He's done it all so that we can be forgiven.
Now that's a moment. That is the biggest reason ever to burst out in celebration, isn't it? But it's not all beer and Skittles. It's not all a party because often our celebration is in sorrow. Just like a team that still has a few more games to play, we can't fully take our eyes off the ball. Like soldiers waiting for that ceasefire, we can't yet put down our weapons. Like the parents of Cleo Smith, elated to have her back, but knowing that there are seriously hard roads for that family ahead. The Jews still had a battle to fight. Their celebration would still be tinged with sadness of what was coming, with sadness and the horror of what they would still have to live through. But they knew and trusted that God has victory. And it's the same for us. If you follow Jesus, you will go through really hard stuff. Actually, Jesus guarantees that. He says the more closely we follow him, the more hard stuff we will go through, the more we will suffer. I just want to come to the end with one little story. There's a guy that I've known since I was a baby, uh, one of my parents' friends. Uh, His name's Paul, uh, and he's a missionary. And he's been a missionary in at least three different continents, in China, in India, in Russia. Uh, And whenever I think of Paul, there's one thing that automatically jumps to mind. And that's his smile and what he says all the time. Praise the Lord. Praise the Lord. But when Paul says it, I know, you know, sometimes I've heard people say it and I think, oh, do you really mean that? When Paul says it, I know that he is really praising God and celebrating. Because I, I see in his face, I see in his eyes, in the lines in his skin, I see that his joy is still mixed with the hardness and the sadness and the sorrow. I can see the hardship that he goes through to keep preaching the gospel, to keep telling people about Jesus. I can see his pain as he is fully aware of the fact that so many around us are without Jesus. So many around us are perishing. And I can see in those eyes that he knows what it's like to suffer and to keep suffering while waiting for Jesus to come back. And so as we finish, I want to encourage us to be a church that's really real. A church that celebrates in the sorrow. We all go through hard times. Some of us, unimaginably hard times. And true Christian faith isn't putting on a smile and acting like there's nothing wrong. No, true Christian faith and celebration is through the pain and the tears and the hardness of life, looking to Jesus and seeing that he has won the victory. And in the midst of those tears and that hardness and that pain, praising and celebrating that he has won that victory for us. Let's not pretend we have to feel happy to celebrate what Christ has done. Let's be a people who truly celebrate even in the midst of our sorrow because Jesus has triumphed.